We can turn your Bibles to Revelation 21 this morning. Revelation 21, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning, and we see very clearly delineated in these verses two destinies. Two destinies for mankind are clearly laid out in the Scriptures for eternity, and eternity, wherever you learned uh, mathematics from, is a long time. And the the choice is essentially ours where we end up in those in one of those two destinies. And this passage uh, makes that very very clear for us. Uh, and we will look into that this morning. The book of Revelation it is a it is a book that uh, just keeps on giving, and it is. It promises in the very beginning that there will be a great blessing for those who read, heed, and hear the things that are in this book. And it does so much more for us than just giving us a timeline for the future so we can make our nice charts and these kinds of things. The book of Revelation uh, reveals, yes, the future to us, but it tells us the details of that future so that we can make decisions about how to live today and uh, where our priorities ought to be and these kinds of things. That's, that's the incredible blessing of the book of Revelation in addition to the fact that in order to properly understand it, you've got to understand an awful lot of the Bible. So there's a great uh, blessing in, in learning the book of Revelation because you're essentially learning the Bible. And we find ourselves in the last, the last part of this wonderful book where we are learning about the new heavens and the new earth. This earth and this world, this universe essentially that we are living in is not uh, eternal. It is not the end all be all as we have seen in these chapters. There is a new creation coming and that is to be our motivation for how we live today. That's uh, kind of the point of this. God is revealing this future to us so that we can be motivated to live for Him today. As we are wrapping up uh, our look at the things which will take place after these things, there's the book of Revelation could not be any more clear in the fact that it is laying out a sequence of events. And the sequence of events that we have seen, we can put on a chart, kind of a side benefit of uh, the book of Revelation. It very clearly lays out that there is coming a tribulation period. It's going to last for seven years uh, there's going to be a series of judgments during that time. It is, it's going to be unprecedented in its uh, death and destruction and despair for people living during this time. We think we have it bad now. Uh, it's nothing compared to what is going to come in the future. Uh, we made the case, have made the case 
many times that as believers, we have the promise that we will be delivered from this time that is coming in the future. Uh, even from the book of Revelation, we can see when it's uh, properly understood. Revelation 3.10, kind of beginning in the middle of the sentence, the first part has a comma after it. When we studied this in depth, we saw there ought to be a period after the word perseverance in our Bibles, but, but there isn't. Uh, so the new sentence begins, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That hour of testing is actually, that's a poetic way of saying seven years of testing, that time of testing. Uh, you will be kept from that. You will be taken out of that time period, essentially, is what, is what the promise that is made there to the church in Philadelphia, you and all the churches will be taken out of that time before it begins. Then the tribulation will come. Uh, seal, trumpet, bull judgments will come during this tribulation period, and then Christ will come again to the earth to establish his kingdom. He comes before the kingdom begins. That's what the Bible clearly points out here in the book of Revelation, and that is why we consider ourselves to be pre-millennial. Millennium being a word that describes a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth where Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem. We are promised in Revelation 5.10 that we will rule and reign with him on the earth. That's this earth that we are living on, Christ will come again to the same way that he departed. That's what the angels promised the apostles when Jesus left. Why are you standing there looking into the sky? Jesus told you to do things, and, and oh, by the way, he's going to come back the same way that he left. He will come to this earth, literally. He will rule and reign over his kingdom that he establishes. We don't make the kingdom. Christ does. And then at the end of that time period in which Satan is bound, he will be released for a short period of time, lead more people into a rebellion than he did even back here in the tribulation period uh, as a, a very clear indicator that we sin as humans. We sin not because Satan made us do it, but because we did it. We are responsible for our own sin God reveals that detail of the kingdom period to us today so that we understand, we can understand that. Uh, Satan made me do it isn't a valid excuse as evidenced by the fact that people are going to sin even without him here. Uh, and they will be led into sin. Obviously, Satan is, is, take, is leading them in the sin, but they are prepared to sin against Christ even when he is uh, in the abyss. He's under captive, not distracting people's minds. There's, they're going to jump onto it immediately and go with him in rebellion to Christ. Christ will deal with them at the end of the kingdom period Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And then we've seen this great white throne judgment that was, is reserved for unbelievers that will take place at the end of the kingdom period.
period, they will be resurrected, judged on the basis of their works because they did not believe in Christ. They did not accept the righteousness that is offered to them. Uh, And so they cannot have God's righteousness in any other way. And so therefore, they're judged based on their works. Do your works match up with the righteousness of God? The obvious answer is no. And then they too will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And that takes us into chapters 21 and 22, where God continues to remind us about this lake of fire and the eternal consequences for not trusting in Christ, not believing in the work that he did for us on the cross. Last time we saw that the first things have passed away and that there is going to be a new creation, literally a new creation out of nothing. The same way that this universe came into existence, God will create a new heavens and a new earth from nothing. And in Revelation 21 and 22, according to uh, noted scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum, this is the only place in the Bible that describes the eternal state. Even though there are Old Testament passages, we looked at a couple last week, that mention the new heavens and the new earth, they are primarily concerned with the kingdom, which is the first, the kingdom on this earth. That's the first step of this two-step process that we talked about, and God living with people. Jesus Christ will come again and live with people on this earth. Then that time period will end the thousand years, and we will move into the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. God, all three persons of the Trinity, there in the very presence us living with the very presence of God for eternity. That's going to take a new heaven and a new earth. And this new Jerusalem that we were introduced to is going to come down out of heaven, out of the third heaven we saw, God's dwelling place where he is now. There's three heavens mentioned in the Bible, the sky where the birds are, the universe where the stars are, and the third heaven is where God lives. This new Jerusalem is going to come out of that place. And that is the place where we are going to enjoy this new way of life with God himself among us. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God has in store for us a new way to live. The way he originally intended it to be in perfect harmony and fellowship with him as our creator and God living with his creatures. And to emphasize the fact that not everybody is, uh, is going to enjoy this destiny because after all, we still have this life to live. This is kind of abstract, what we're talking about. It's separated from us. It's in the future. Uh, uh, 
potentially far into the future, certainly far into the future when it was written. And so therefore, and it's at least a thousand and seven years into the future from us today, uh, we need to be reminded about the realities of this life. And that's what God does for us here in these verses, reminding us that there are two destinies. You can enjoy this future with God through one path, one path only, or the rest of the paths, every other path exclusive of Jesus Christ will lead you to this other destiny. So today we'll see the faithful and true words, the free salvation that is offered to all of mankind and the fiery end. Notice Revelation 21 and verse 5. It says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice that he begins with these faithful and true words. Revelation 21 and verse 5 again says, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. He who sits on the throne. This is a description of God, the father, uh, and he is the one who sits on the throne. If you'll remember, uh, Christ mentions the, the, the thrones earlier in the book of Revelation that he is, going to, uh, he is going to the Father's throne, and then he has a throne upon the earth. There's two different thrones there, God's throne in heaven and Christ's throne on the earth. This is God himself who is speaking. And he, he hasn't, uh, uh, God the Father is kind of uh, in the background throughout much of the book of Revelation. After all, the, the title of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revealing of Christ and what he is going to do. God the Father is still there. Uh, on his throne, that's where he's pictured throughout this book as being on his throne, which is a great uh, reminder of us. But notice that he isn't named. He's just he who sits on the throne. And this is kind of a, a characteristic of John's writing. Uh, after all, he was the, he even referred to himself in a similar way in his gospel. He never named himself. He was always kind of the apostle that Jesus loved or something along those lines. He didn't name himself. That was out of humility for himself. This, I believe, is out of reverence for God. Uh, he's mentioned also in Revelation 4, 9, it says, and when the living 
creatures give glory and honor. If you remember Revelation 4, the scene in heaven, uh, kind of setting the stage for the tribulation events. Why are these things happening? Uh, this great scene of, of praise and glory for God in heaven. It says, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, he's, he's unnamed there. And I think this is very, very much in keeping with, with John's Jewish background and his understanding of the Old Testament and his, his deep understanding of who God is. After all, there's a commandment about taking God's name in vain. One of the 10 most important things on God's mind about how to revere him and understand who he is. That's what the 10 commandments are for the Jewish people and kind of as a, as a secondary application, if you will, to you and to me. How do we... Uh, understand who God is? How should we order our lives as God's people? Those Ten Commandments are a pretty good, good place to go to, to understand how we ought to do that. The third commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 7 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Very few of the commandments mention the consequences of not following the law that is given. This is one of them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. We are very flippant with the use of God's name in the 21st century. Even the word God used to be kind of one of the seven swear words that you weren't allowed to say on TV. And it isn't that way anymore. Uh, we kind of, uh, we can even use a little text ease to use God's name, OMG. That's using, that's a substitute for God's name, if you will. Uh, and we're, we're very apt to do that sort of thing, and we ought not to be. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking to you <laughs> as a fellow sinner, so just want to make us aware about God's Word and the importance of His name. John doesn't even mention His name. He, he's He who sits on the throne. Uh, Jewish people have a great reverence for God's name. And yeah, we kind of don't. And we ought to have a little bit more uh, a little bit more reverence for his name. Also notice here that as I mentioned before, God the Father is almost exclusively, if not exclusively, mentioned as sitting on his throne in the book of Revelation. And he's still there. <laughs> he's, he's there today, and he's still there after the tribulation, after the kingdom period, and now moving into the eternal state, he's still sitting on his throne. He's still communicating with people. He's still very interested in, in what we are doing and how we are living. And then... 
uh, he makes this announcement of the new creation that we already, we saw that in verses four uh, or verses one through four, we see this new creation and now God himself announces it to John. Behold, I am making all things new. Repetition, repetition. Over and over these themes uh, become very clear in really the entirety of the Bible And in Revelation in particular, one of the themes is that there is a sequence of events that are going to take place before Christ comes again. Then he will come again. Then he will establish his kingdom. Then he will cast uh, Satan into the lake of fire. Then we will live with him for eternity. Could not be any more clear that there is a coming sequence of events that we need to be prepared for. Another one of these that is uh, in these recent chapters is that God is making all things new. He's making a new creation. God, the Father himself, mentioning it here in verse 5. And this is not, as if you go to the commentaries on this passage about making all things new, and I I think it's even in uh, the NASB, there's a note If I'm not mistaken, I won't take the time again to read the fine print, but there's a note. Uh, One of the references in this verse is to 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And individuals, maybe well-intentioned, will say, Uh, that, oh, see, this Revelation 21, ah, don't worry about that eternal state and this tribulation stuff and Antichrist and a literal kingdom on the earth. Don't even worry about all of that. This is just talking about God making us new. This uh, This is a poetic way of describing the new creatures, the new creation that we are as believers in Christ. After all, that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 517. And that that is a very dangerous way to interpret this book in particular and the Bible in general to just kind of cast aside all of this very clear language that's laying out a sequence of events that are important for us. We We talked about the importance of a literal kingdom on the earth and and the importance of it for God conquering sin and all of its consequences and showing that he is faithful and true and will do the things that he says that he's going to do. And so while yes, as believers in Christ, we are, uh, as it says here, new creatures, old things have passed away. As a believer, you have received the righteousness of Christ. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit And so therefore you ought to be uh, walking with him, living with him. Uh, You are saved for the purpose of serving him with your life. That's what Paul is getting at here in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That doesn't take away from Revelation 21 in the fact that God has a plan for a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with him uh, for eternity in perfect harmony 
and fellowship with all of the consequences of sin being perfectly eradicated and taken care of by God himself. And notice that first word there, behold, I am making all things new. This, that word, behold, is used 25 times in the book of Revelation. It is a command, and it is, it's a command to get us to pay attention to the fact that something important is about to be said. Uh, Revelation 1, 7, uh, behold, Jesus Christ is coming again. And this book is going to describe the events leading up to that, essentially, is what that is. Uh, Revelation 4, 1, behold, uh, John was taken up to heaven to see a scene in heaven before the tribulation takes place on the earth, before he describes the tribulation event. Uh, events. Uh, That, while it is certainly agreeably circumstantial evidence, it's very good circumstantial evidence that, again, points to the church being taken up to heaven before the tribulation begins. Uh, Revelation 6-2, behold, uh, the seal judgments are about to come upon the earth. Pay attention, there's a sequence of events that are going to happen during this tribulation period. Revelation 16, 15, behold, uh, Christ is coming again, essentially. Pay attention to these facts. God the Father, speaking from his throne, wants us to pay attention to the fact that this earth is passing away. This earth that you are living on today is no longer going to exist in the future. That new car, new truck that you're really wanting to have, that thing isn't going to exist anymore. The place where you work isn't going to exist anymore. Uh, Whatever you hold near and dear on this earth isn't going to exist anymore. Something else is going to take its place, but you as a person are going to exist forever, and you have the opportunity to live in this new place that God is going to make for us. And to emphasize the fact, not just pay attention to this, not just, hey, listen up, notice what he tells John to do. God the Father to John says, write That's another command, for these words are faithful and true. God doesn't just tell John to memorize this. Hey, memorize this, uh, write it on some gold tablets, then hide the gold tablets so nobody else sees them, and then just go tell everybody what I said. No, he says, write it down, compose it. Write these words down verbatim, the way that I'm saying, put them in a book and save it and give it to other people so that they can have these words because they are faithful and true. This ought to inform our opinion about the written word. The the written word is a register of God's words and intentions to us, and we ought to treat it 
that way. It is more important, it is more vital to our understanding of who God is than our experiences. That is something that is very much lost in the world today. The world is after an experience. Go to almost any church website. Uh, uh, I spend a lot of time looking at church websites uh, just out of curiosity and interest. A whole lot of them will mention the word experience. Come to our worship experience. It's awesome is basically what they say. The world is after an experience. We should not be after experiences. We should be after uh, a mental, disciplined understanding of God and his word because this is faithful and true. Your experiences may not be faithful and true. Your experience may not be what you think it is. Peter emphasizes this fact to his readers when he says in 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, uh, really, uh, verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That's not the passage that I wanted. I think it's Second Peter. And so I'll have to find it in my Bible. <laughs> I should have it memorized. You've heard this many times before. There it is. Second Peter 1.19 So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The, the context of Peter saying this is that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the literal voice of God from heaven tell him that this is Jesus. This is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased. That's an experience. Going to a church and sitting in a dark room and listening to super loud music and waving your hands around is an experience. It's not that. It's not being on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Christ glorified and hearing a voice from heaven tell you that this is a genuine experience. Peter goes on to say that that experience pales in, in comparison to the written word of God. And we do well to pay closer attention to the word of God than we do to our experiences. That's why God tells John to write these things down because the written word is faithful and it's true. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.14, he says, you to Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred 
writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What are, what are the sacred writings that Timothy was exposed to? That's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he was uh, had the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, man. If he, he had the Old Testament, he had enough to lead him to faith in Christ. What do we have in the New Testament? We are left without excuse. Paul says, verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. John, write these things down because these words are faithful and true and they will equip believers in the future to be able to do work for me. And uh, Jesus emphasized, of course, the importance of the written word. If you remember back to our study of the Gospel of Luke, his, we have a very misguided understanding in today's world of uh, Jesus and his his earthly ministry, we think he was just uh, gathering a lot of crowds and healing people and doing miracles and doing all this kind of fun stuff when most of the time is spent teaching people, teaching people from the Word. Notice what he says in one of his uh, kind of parables, if you will, the rich man and the Lazarus, you're, and Lazarus, you'll remember that. Uh, that essentially the rich man has all of the benefits of this life and he ends up in a kind of fiery place of torment when he dies. Uh, Interesting that Jesus would mention that. And Lazarus, on the other hand, by implication, is a person who had faith in this life, believed in God, trusted in him, and he goes to Abraham's bosom, a very pleasant place that Jesus is describing, a a place that we would call heaven. So essentially, one of them is in hell, one destiny, the other is in heaven, a different, very different destiny. Uh, The rich man speaks to Abraham and is, is in this place of torment and wants Abraham to do something for him because he still has family on this earth and he doesn't want them to end up in this place of torment. Uh, essentially wants somebody to go to them and tell, tell my family that, you know, avoid this place. But eight, verse 29 of Luke 16 says, but Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. These people have the Bible. They have the written word of God. They need to be paying attention to that. Verse 30, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's an experience. Somebody is going to rise from the dead and then tell them, Oh, surely they will believe that. Verse 31, But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Of course, Jesus alluding to himself, literally rising from the dead, and still 
appearing to hundreds, if not thousands of people risen from the dead, the Jewish people still didn't believe in him uh, as, as a nation, even after he rose from the dead. They didn't want the experience because, or they didn't believe in the experience because, not because they didn't have enough faith, because they didn't believe in the written word. The written word is superior to the experience, and that's why God is telling John to write down these faithful and true words. Some of those faithful and true words are the fact that there is a free salvation available to you, me, and every person who has ever lived. Notice verses 6 and 7. Then he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Literally, this said, it doesn't say it is done there. You, if you have an NASB Bible, you do have a little uh, superscript number there that says they are done. And that's literally what it says. Uh, I'm not really sure why it says it is done other than to make it conform with other passages in the Bible. And in fact, another place in Revelation where it does say, Revelation 16, 17, it says it is done. But the term here is uh, they are done. So what does he mean when he says they instead of it? He's talking about the words, the the events that are taking up, that, that will take place before this eternal state. Everything that is to take place uh, has taken place. They are done. Everything is finished. Revelation 5.1, if you'll remember, in that scene in heaven, uh, it says that John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And then they, uh, John was upset because, you know, oh, what, how are we going to see what's inside this book? There's nobody who's worthy enough to open this book. And then he sees the Lamb as if slain Jesus Christ himself. He is worthy to open up the book uh, and to reveal these truths. Revelation 5, 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have eradicated sin. You have made it possible for people to come into this future destiny of bliss with God, living with him forever through your shed blood, Jesus Christ. So you are worthy to open this book. And the book, if you'll remember, revealed the various tribulation judgments that will lead up to Christ coming again to the earth. So the seal judgments were 
uh, unleashed by Christ. Christ is the one breaking the seals. This isn't Satan's wrath versus God's wrath. This is all God's wrath. The time of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, and the first seal begins the tribulation period. Um, and so that that first seal is going to count uh, start the seven-year countdown. We're not living in the time of the fourth seal, and then we jump back to the second, and oh, this might be the fifth, I'm not sure. Uh, none of that. These are future judgments. This has not taken place yet. Uh, remember, Revelation 4 begins, the, the things which will take place after these things, after the church age is over, then these judgments begin. Seal judgments lead into trumpet judgments. Uh, then we made the case that that's the midpoint of the tribulation period. Scholars differ on that. That's fine. Uh, this isn't ironclad. To me, it makes the most sense because after the trumpet judgments, then we have Revelation 12 and 13 describing in depth uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the, the various uh, setting up of the abomination of desolation in the temple. That we know is the midpoint. And then the uh, scroll is continued to be read, and the bold judgments are poured out upon the earth, uh, ending with Christ coming again at the end of the tribulation period. They are done. Everything that is written on that scroll that God the Father handed over to Christ to open has taken place. That's why it says there that they are done. And then notice next in verse 6 that he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is kind of a poetic way for God to say that he is all in all. There, are, there, are, there is a lot wrapped up in this phraseology of Alpha and Omega. Of course, in the Greek language, Alpha is the first letter, Omega is the last letter. That's kind of the, the poetic way of, of saying this. But God is all in all. Everything is about him. He is everything in this world. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is another way of, of stating this alpha and omega sort of language. Isaiah used language that was similar to this. And Isaiah 43.10, uh, and we'll read this uh, more of this passage. It makes an, this Alpha and Omega sort of language is stating that there is, there's one God and only one God. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. He is the first God and the last God, and no gods in between, none before, none after. He is it. 
throughout the entirety of the creation and before the creation of everything. <laughs> and he had a plan from the, the very beginning, before the beginning of time, he had a plan for this world and for people to live with him forever. He did, he's not just coming up with these, uh, these solutions to our problems on the fly, if you will. He has a plan for us already in place. We were chosen in him uh, before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. We spent literally weeks talking about these passages in Ephesians when we studied it, and I'd invite you to go back and review those to kind of get the get the in-depth information here. He's not saying that uh, in these passages that there is a subset of humanity that's chosen for life personally and everybody else is just sort of out of luck. Uh, that is not his point. The point is that he has had a plan from before the beginning that all those who would be in him would have eternal life. And the rest of Scripture makes very clear how we are in Him. And we are in Him by faith. This is the way that God has determined from eternity past that people would be made right with Him and that it is through believing in Him. We are all given the choice. Which choice are we going to make? Are we going to believe in the free water without cost? Or are we going to believe in our ability to live up to God's standard? That is essentially our choice as humans. That has been God's plan uh, from the beginning. And there's our First Peter 1, 20 and 21, that we have this eternal life from the foundation of the world through the shed blood of the precious Lamb, Jesus Christ. This, is, this has been God's plan from the very beginning. And notice that this, this salvation is from God. It is all from Him. He is the one who has determined the plan. He is the one who has put all of the provisions of, pl of the plan into place he is the one who has done all the work. We simply trust in what he has done for us. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. God is the one giving the salvation. Isaiah 43, 10, again, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed and there will be none after me. Verse 11, I, even I am the Lord and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act 
and who can reverse it. I act, I give you salvation, God is saying, and who can reverse that? The obvious intended answer of that question is no one. No one and no thing can reverse that act as Jesus said in John 5:24 when you believe in him you pass from death into life you are placed into the father's hand Christ holds you there and nothing can take you out of that relationship once it is made and it is this relationship is based on this free water this poetic way of expressing eternal life that that he uses here. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It costs you nothing to trust in the water of life that God is offering to you. Jesus had a very, uh, or had a discussion along a similar uh, lines with the woman at the well, if you remember in John 4. Uh, Jesus meets with this woman at the well. Jesus answered, verse 10 of John 4, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, salvation is the gift that he is mentioning there. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman at the well said, living water, uh, what is that essentially? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well that she was coming to to get water. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice the language. We sung the hymn this morning, whosoever will, uh, not planned, but it's part of what we see here. Verse 14 of John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst again. This water is available to whoever is thirsty, according to Revelation 21 and verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. There is not a single person in this world who has ever lived who is thirsty, who goes to Christ for water, who won't get it. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a person who wants to have salvation, understands who Christ is, understands who they are as a sinner separated from God, goes to Christ, who doesn't get the gift. He will give it to any person who goes to him freely. In John 7, when Jesus is uh, going to one of the feasts, John 7 and verse 37 Uh, It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And now it, in the commentaries, when you read about John 7, you'll see that at that time, the priests are pouring out water as a part of the festival all over everything on the temple grounds. They're pouring all this water and Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me from his innermost being will come springs of living water. One single condition. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will give to you salvation. What must a man do to be saved? The Philippian jailer asked. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. A single condition, not a list of do's and don'ts uh, or any of that. Single condition, believe and you will be saved. Uh, first Corinthians 10, 4, from our scripture reading, we saw that uh, Paul makes a reference to the rock in the desert that Moses, that God told Moses to hit so that the people would be able to drink water. Paul says, uh, alludes to metaphorically speaking, that rock is Christ. He is the one who provides this living water. He is the one who provides the eternal life. And then in verse 7, we could get confused <laughs> by, the, by the language here, the English language. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, as good uh, red-blooded Americans, we read that, he who overcomes, uh, okay, well, I know what that means. Uh, it literally, in the, in the Greek, I can even open up my Greek Bible and, and it even says who is victorious. Uses that term Nike. That's what that, uh, that means. Victory. We've overcome. We're doing it. We beat the enemy. And that isn't what it means. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the one who overcomes and we overcome through him and what he has done for us. We are overcomers when we trust in the one who is overcome for us. This was very important to the apostle Paul, and he told the, the uh, kind of the elders of Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, he told them the secret to overcoming in this life, how to, how to live a successful Christian life. Acts 20, 32, he says, and now I commend you, his last words to them, essentially, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice Paul doesn't tell him, hey, roll up your sleeves, hold on tighter, try harder, keep going. You got to do it. No, he commends them to God and to the word of his grace. He commends them to the walk of faith. Trust in God's word. Trust in the Holy Spirit who indwells in you and you will inherit the things that are to come in the future. You will be an overcomer if you walk by faith. John makes it very clear what an overcomer is for us. The overcomer is not the one who is 
uh, faithful and true and does it in his own strength and is kind of the, the A-plus Christian. You know, oh, you look at that guy. Oh, he's definitely saved. He's here at church every time the doors are open. That's not what makes us an overcomer. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Same word based on Nike. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ is the one who has... uh, conquered sin, taken care of all of its consequences. He is the one who will establish this kingdom on the earth. We need to be having faith in him and according to Paul, his word. He commends them to God in the word of his grace. We are overcomers when we have faith in the tools that God has given to us. And another one of those tools is the Holy Spirit that we read about in Ephesians 1. 13 through 14, very clear order of salvation given there. Hear the word, believe the word, saved, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Couldn't be any more clear in those uh, verses what Paul is describing. And notice that this water is free here. Uh, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The Israelites did the same thing. They were in the in the uh, desert grumbling about not having any water. God didn't tell them, okay, uh, Israelites, get to work. <laughs> You're thirsty? Start digging a well. What's wrong with you? Roll up your sleeves. You got to get busy for God. You've got to do these things. Uh God provided the work for them, but Moses or provided the water for them, but Moses did the work. Moses hit the rock, the water came out, they drank freely. They didn't have to do anything. And it's exactly the same for salvation. We don't do the work for salvation. If we did, we would boast about it, and that kind of takes care of the salvation thing. Uh, we can't do the work because we are sinful people. God made the plan. God made the provision for us in Christ, and he provides salvation to us if we will only believe in him. Uh, and this, it's, it's very interesting that God essentially is providing the impossible, water from a rock. How does that happen? It's impossible for water to come out of a rock. Uh, God does it miraculously. I've flown with people who live, uh, one individual lived in Flagstaff, Arizona. And uh, it, for some reason, I asked about uh, the water. Like, how deep is your well? You live on that mountain. How deep is your well? We don't have a well. <laughs> the water gets trucked in. There's no way, it's impossible to dig down far enough to get the water. You can't do it. It has to be brought to you. Very much the same idea with our salvation. 
uh, it is impossible for us to dig down deep enough to get this water that leads to eternal life. God has to give it to us. And this, this idea of overcomer, being an overcomer, and uh, we overcome by our faith, that doesn't downplay the importance of works for the Christian. It emphasizes the importance of faith for salvation. Then, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, when you go to the passages in the Bible that have to do with salvation and how to have it, it in terms of the rest of the Bible, it's going to be about that, that much out of all of the scriptures. The rest of this, the rest of the overwhelming majority of this is telling us how to live for God, how the Israelites were to live for God, not how they would have salvation. That's very clear. It says it about 200 times in the Bible that we have salvation by faith alone, but God wants us to live for him. So don't, don't leave here saying, oh, pastor said how we live our lives isn't important. It's just all about faith. Then I can go and do whatever I want. Heaven forbid, God forbid. Paul says in uh, Romans many times that we would be charged with that kind of a fallacious charge. No, that isn't at all what we're saying. We want to make crystal clear, however, how a person has salvation so that you can be saved, so that you can enjoy this destiny with God for eternity. Nevertheless, you are to live for him today because that's part of God's plan. How did you hear about salvation? Somebody being faithful. That's pretty much the only way you can hear about it. Somebody even if it was for just 30 seconds, being obedient to God and his word and telling you about salvation through faith in Christ. That person was obedient. That's how you heard about it. That's how somebody is going to hear in the future. And in order to be the best possible witness, you have to be engaged in living for the Lord. For him, that's the way this uh, situation <laughs> has been planned by God. And when you accept the free gift of salvation, it's free to you because Christ did all of the work. You enjoy a, a very pleasant destiny. If you do not, you do not have a pleasant destiny. Verse 8, very quickly. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That first word there, verse 8, but it's a very little word with a big impact. This is a change of subject, drawing our attention to there's two different destinies. One as free salvation through faith. The other one is very different. And Paul points that out a couple of times, that there is a different destiny for people who will not believe, and uh, they have no part in the future with God. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he goes on and uh, uh, lists some sins that are characteristic of unrighteous people. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same uh, idea in Galatians 5, 19. These are what are called vice lists is kind of the theological term. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, uh, Revelation 21. Here we have another one. This is not uh, intended to say that these are the sins that keep you out of heaven. There's only one sin that keeps you out of heaven. That is the sin of unbelief, not trusting in Christ. However, these are sins that characterize unrighteousness is the point. And so uh, the point is not that if you commit one of these sins, you're going to be cast into hell. If you commit one of these sins and you've never trusted in Christ, you are going to be cast into hell. If you are a person who's trusted in Christ and you find yourself involved in one of these sins, then you need to put down everything that you're doing rush to Christ and ask him for forgiveness, and then you can have a restored relationship with him. He is saying that these people are known by their deeds. They're known by their deeds because they have not trusted in Christ. We have a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we are viewed as having the righteousness of God. We're in Christ by way of faith, Romans 4. 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So stop working, trust in Christ. He gives you his righteousness. These people in verse eight did not do that. And so they are known by their deeds. That's this, this is the same group of people that we saw in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment who are being judged there because they are unbelievers and they are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, Again, another way or another time that he is expressing that our works will not match up to the righteousness of God. We can only have it through trust in Christ. And now some are going to get all worked up over this this list here, verse 8, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Uh, and uh, the other list, 1 Corinthians 6, well, it doesn't, uh, some of these don't mention homosexuality, so that must not be a sin. Uh, uh, and uh, you're kind of on shaky ground. In fact, it does. <laughs> one or the other of these uh, passages, I don't remember which one, does specifically mention homosexuality, but it is actually listed here. 
immoral persons. That is for immoral. The Greek term is porneia. That's sexually immoral people are not uh, included here whose lives are characterized again by this. People who are unbelievers, they're known by their works and therefore they're going to be judged by their works. Uh, Sexually immoral people will be excluded from the kingdom because they're living in that way that is contrary to God. And so sexually immoral, porneia, Greek term, where we get pornography from, you can put that into the list as well. Uh, The Bible couldn't be any more clear that one of the most important areas of life for God is being sexually pure. So the the list of deviant behavior in this regard is, is nearly endless. And if you pay attention to modern culture, you find out new ones every day. There's another uh, uh, perverse way of acting in this regard. The list of accepted sexual behavior is very short. Very, very short. In fact, there's one. Isn't that interesting? There is one way to be sexually pure before holy God. That is one man and one woman together in marriage. One. One and only one. That's easy to remember, isn't it? You don't have to be concerned with all of the other ways. Just one way. Same with salvation. Same with God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I was the first God before there was time. I will be the last God when there is no more time in the future. And everything in between, there's one. There's one way to be right with that God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. One simple way. One simple way for us to be sexually pure before God as well. It's almost as if he does these things on purpose for us to remind us of who he is and what he expects from us And it's almost like he does it on purpose to remind us that there is a destiny for those who refuse to trust in the one way to God, and it is a lake of fire. And he mentions it here again, and it is the second death. It's mentioned three times in verses 14 and 15. It's mentioned here again. It will be mentioned again in the future. Hell is a real place, and it is the place of the second death. Kind of the current trend in evangelicalism is to say that, oh, there really isn't a hell. You don't have to be worried about that. That's so mean. Why would God do that? God is nice. He accepts us the way we are. After all, our church is open arms. Anybody can come. It's all, we're just great. Of course there isn't a hell. Well, that disregards an awful large part of the Bible an awful large part of the teaching of Christ himself over and over and over. He warns us of a lake of fire or a place of actual torment. The book of Revelation over and over and over and over and over again is warning us of this place of fire, the second death, eternal separation from God that will happen in Revelation 20 and verse 14. Uh, and 
it is a very real reality for people in the future. So we have two destinies laid before us. One is free. The other one takes a lot of work. Did you notice that? I, I, maybe I'm just inherently lazy, but I kind of like that first, that first one. No work on my part. I cease working. I simply trust in Christ and what he has done. If you're a real go-getter, uh, <laughs> you can try. Uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, I'm not saying to be lazy in this life. Be a go-getter in this life when it comes to uh, living for the Lord. When it comes to salvation, be lazy. <laughs> Trust in the work that's already been done. Trust in Christ and what he has done for you, and you can enjoy life with him forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for revealing these faithful and true words to us. And I just pray that you would be with us in these uh, days in which we are living. Help us to be encouraged by the faithful and true words. Help us to be motivated by the future that you have for us. And uh, we thank you for the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ. And I just pray that that truth would change us uh, internally and change us in our actions and our motivations for this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.